More people than ever are questioning the value of higher education. We're here to explore why they're right, why they're wrong, and which institutions are rising to the challenge. I'm here with our analytics consultant, Dr. Jacob Bonney, and Dr. Patrick Turner, who is the Associate Provost for Student Success at New Mexico State University. We're happy to have you. So excited for today's conversation. Um, so just to start us out, Dr. Turner, tell us about yourself and what drove your passion for student success. Uh, as you said, I'm the Associate Provost for Student Success. And as the Associate Provost for that, in that particular role, my job is to really bring together the academic affairs unit as well as the student affairs unit that we often talk about bringing those silos together, but very few institutions actually do that. So my role is really to serve as that liaison and to make sure those two units are communicating, as well as my role is to work with the faculty, the faculty role in student success. Our students spend about 90% of their lives in the classroom, so it only makes sense to really incorporate them into that particular uh, uh, conversation. But my background and what drives me for student success, because I was one of those students, those students who struggle, who come from an impoverished, impoverished neighborhood and needed that type of support, needed that type of di direction. And oftentimes what we see that students are left out of this equation of access and support and success. And my philosophy, my role is that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, your race, ethnicity, your zip code, that you should be provided the opportunity, not just success, because many years ago, we just focused on success. So we said, we stated, we said, hey, come on in to, into the institution, but we didn't provide the support that our students needed to help them get to the finish line. So my role and what drives me is to ensure that all of these brilliant minds that come through the institution and need this type of support and have maybe some gaps in their background, whether it's learning, whether it's financial or family support to ensure that they have a, a, a equal access to be able to be that brilliant mind that we know that they're capable of being. So that's what really drives me around this time of the year where, where everyone is having their graduations and celebration. This is the best time for me because I get to see students come in as freshmen with their families, they're wide-eyed, they, they don't know what's happening, but then also see this growth and this maturity of them walking across the stage into their success, into their careers. So that's what constantly drives me, just being able to see this, these trends transitions of these students and how it trans uh, uh, kind of transitions their communities and their family lives. Thank you. Uh, one of the questions, well, the question I was going to ask is, is what are some of the barriers to student success in higher education? But one of the things you, you touched on there in particular is, is your work to build uh, bridges and tear down silos. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, change my question a little bit and get some more information about what you all are doing to address what is often one of the biggest barriers? Yeah, definitely. This is an ongoing conversation because again, uh, higher education has, we have this model that we've been using for hundreds of years. So it's always difficult. Though we are higher education, we are the most resistant to change. You know, so that's a constant conversation that we're having because we make several uh, assumptions about our students. We we think that they come in prepared. We think that they they know what the word curricula means. We think we, they know what the words uh, financial aid mean or how to create a schedule or how to drop a class or, or even simple things that students not knowing what 
office hours mean? So having these conversations with our faculty, having these conversations with our student affairs of how can we better accommodate the needs of our students? And oftentimes we are trying to educate those students that we want to come in instead of educating those students that are actually in front of us. So this is an ongoing conversation institutional level because we have different departments like TRIO or or uh, financial aid or academic advising or the tutoring center who's having these, these conversations about how can we tailor our services to our students, but it needs to be a conversation at the institutional level, especially when we talk about equity and looking at everything through an equity lens. We are here in New Mexico State University. Uh, we're a Hispanic serving institution. We're a minority serving institution. We're right here at the, the border city Juarez right here at the border. So we have a lot of students who come in, they may be uh, uh, DACA students, they may be the only uh, uh, person in their household that's, that speaks English. So they have to take care of their family members, they have to take care of all of the um, family responsibilities from, from talking to the doctors, from going to uh, grocery shop, all those different things. So understanding the student population that you serve is an ongoing conversation. And we're pushing that, that dial on how can we better tailor our services to our students because we're still servicing institutions around the U.S. are still servicing students that we had 100 years ago. And as we know, our student population has drastically changed. Uh, what we call traditional students, I call them traditional students with non-traditional responsibilities, that they're taking care of their families, they're working, they have all the, they have jobs and responsibilities in addition to going to school. So having these conversations and including everyone into these conversations, faculty, staff, and, and sometimes a voice that is absent, the student that we, we talk about student success and what we think student success is, whether it's retention, persistence, graduation, and going into the workforce. But most of the time, students don't know what retention means. They don't really care about retention. They don't care about persistence. They care about graduating and getting a job. What I do find out is students care about creating a sense of belonging, creating a community, them being able to bring all of their intersecting identities to the table and the institution recognizing those of those intersecting identities, incorporating and including that in their pedagogy, in their curricular design, in the support services. So having that type of conversation on both the academic affairs side and the student affairs side is an ongoing process because again, all of our responsibilities over the last 10 years, especially over the last two years, have changed. So we have to really understand that. And it's not a one-time conversation, it's an ongoing conversation. So I wanna come back to the student voice and building community, but first let's talk a little bit about your designation as a Hispanic serving institution. So on LinkedIn, just a few days ago, you shared an article by the Chronicle that was titled, <laughs> everyone wants to be a Hispanic serving institution. And in your post, your comment was that student success is more than collecting a check because of your designation or classification. So can you talk about this and explain that in a little more detail for us? This has been, uh, and I hate to say this is an ongoing debate, uh, that oftentimes uh, we see ourselves as Hispanic serving institutions, but those of us who actually work within Hispanic serving institutions, HSI, see it as enrolling that we're counting the number of students, but we're not really tailoring our services 
to that particular population of students. Of course, when students reach that particular, when institutions reach that particular 25%, that they, they have kind of gotten this designation and they get some additional benefits, some additional monies, but that money doesn't necessarily go to serving the population of students, Hispanic students, that it was it was designated for. So a lot of institutions, as you see, are growing and becoming Hispanic service institutions, but they're not changing their teaching practices. They're not changing their, their policies, their procedures. They're not understanding and collecting data on that population to, uh, to realize how can we better serve you, especially if we're talking about DACA students, if we're talking about students in immigration, especially being here at the borderland. What does that mean? How is it, how, how are the students' lives affected uh, by the border being right there, where we see patrol cars kind of going up and down the highway. How does that affect their families and their finances? Even with the HERF money, they weren't able to have access. Students, international students definitely from Mexico weren't, didn't have access to that particular funding. So we need to understand that if we're going to have that designation of being an HSI, that you need to understand what that means, that when you take that money, there is a certain level of accountability that goes along with it. And I think a lot of institutions hadn't really thought that far. You know, I know they want in that article, they talked about, you know, them, them, them getting the money and maybe building new facilities and providing new services. And even some institutions admittedly that admitted that they hadn't really thought that far. But now that you've gotten the money, now that you've gotten that, that designation, that title, you need to be very intentional and thoughtful on how you use it to serve that population of students. So um, intentionality going back to the student voice. Um, obviously that is something that's important. And I think you're right that a lot of universities don't tap into the student voice and they're not really listening to their students. So in what ways do you think that New Mexico State University is doing that differently? We are constantly reaching out to our students. We have a great student organization, which is uh, uh, ASNMSU, which is kind of the SGA and other institutions, uh, the students that represent all the students on campus, but definitely our uh, Hispanic students, since we are a Hispanic serving institution, we have Chicano programs, uh, which that's the population. They serve all students, but that's the population, their target population of students. But we ensure that anytime we are, we're discussing policies, procedures, curricular, any types of activities uh, uh, that really requires having that student voice there, we ensure that we have representation there because we know that representation, representation matter. Or if there's any policy changes that is really gonna impact all of our students, we send that out for our students to view first to see if there's any corrections or updates that need to be made. Or if we're leaving anyone out of this conversation uh, because our students, believe me, uh, pretty much right now, our students, you have no problem with them having input. Our students are very vocal and it's just listening to what they have to say because I always make distinction between creating a sense of welcome and creating a sense of belonging. Oftentimes, institutions say, hey, come on in, take a few of our classes, pay your tuition, but we're not going to include your voice. We're not going to include your representation. We're not going to include your background and experiences, but a sense of belonging requires that. So I think a lot of us are mistaking creating a sense of welcome and calling it a sense of belonging. But at New Mexico State University, we really 
hold tight to that idea of creating a sense of belonging? How can we better and intentionally include our students' voices from every level, from your undergrad students to our grad students, which at one point they felt that they were being left out? of the conversation is that oftentimes we were tapping into the undergrad students, but then our graduate students were like, hey, we have a voice as well. So we are very intentional about going out and talking to our students and saying, hey, we want your, your voice in this. We want to make sure, and, and sometimes you get feedback, sometimes you don't, but that means you need to go back to the students and say, hey, we really need your voice in this to ensure that our policies are, are effective and efficient and that they're benefiting not only the institution, but our students who we serve as well. Speaking of that sort of sense of belonging, I know you've written several papers on first-year student transitions. <laughs> uh, that was the focus of my dissertation as well. Uh, <laughs> can you share a little bit about uh, your efforts or, or thoughts around that first-year student transition um, and really what, you know, what metrics and, and processes you're looking at to ensure that those students are being successful in that first year? Well, definitely. That I'm happy to hear that that was, that was your dissertation. Um, but no, that is a passion of mine that first year, because again, my background, uh, being a younger student, I didn't have that type of guidance. We weren't even talking about the first year experience at that time. So really, you just went to college and you, you hung on for, for dear life. You know, so it really does my heart good to know that we are intentional about focusing on the first year experience. Uh, here at, at uh, just in general, on a national level, but at New Mexico State University, we had first year courses, but they didn't actually have a first year experience department. So over the last two years, I was able with the provost help to create a first year experience department where we are really working with faculty, we're working with staff, we're working with the community to really understand what that means. And that though we're focusing on the first year experience, that experience is threaded throughout their sophomore year, their junior year, and their, their senior year, because though we know entering is, is a big transition for a lot of students, but at those different junctions, our students need certain type of support and certain type of care. As a sophomore, you need something a little bit different from a freshman. As a junior, you need something a little bit different from a sophomore. So we really have to pay attention to those, those types of junctures and what the students need at that time. So we, like I said, we, we have different freshman courses, support courses. We also, for this semester, we're creating the first learning community. They've never had a, uh, a true learning community where, where students are linked together by courses. And then the hope is to progress to having those themed where you start addressing those departments or those areas like chemistry or engineering, those different majors that we see uh, a great deal of attrition or, or DWF rates. So the goal is to really move it, move the dial forward so we can function and really support students uh, uh, from the first year all the way to their, their uh, uh, senior year. And then also this past semester, we partnered with uh, Apple for all of our freshman students to get an iPad. You know, so that it, it was great, you know, that a lot of institutions give students iPad, but what we did was also to, to ensure that they understood how to use it effectively, because we can call students digital natives, but there's a dif dif difference between being a digital native and digital education. That our, our students are very fluent with social media and all those different things, but when we talk about integrating that into your academics, integrating it into writing a play paper, doing uh, 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 some type of research paper or something like that, that we want to make sure that our freshmen really understood how they could use this Apple iPad. So all of our freshmen, they were required 
to take this, this, this eight-week course to teach them how to effectively use this iPad for their academic career. And the great thing about it is those students taking the class, they actually get to keep the iPad once they graduate. You know, they, they get to use it throughout their entire matriculation, but they also get to keep it once they graduate. So we have many initiatives that are that are uh, that we're really pushing that uh, can really support our students at every juncture of their academic career. So creating a sense of belonging um, is really starting to be a theme of this conversation. Um, so I wanted to ask about this. Men of Color, which is a New Mexico State University initiative, um, hosted a home for the holidays event for those <laughs> who couldn't make it home during the holiday break. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit here to talk about um, you know, the fact that this is obviously a fun and a feel good event, but can you talk about the responsibility that universities have to pay attention to the mental health and the sense of belonging to students and how this impacts overall student success? I'm glad that you noticed that that was our the first event that they've ever had of that that nature uh, because again I'm always reminiscing about my time at in 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 college and when uh, when the holidays rolled around if you couldn't go home you were kind of just trapped there on the uh, at the institution and you 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 were there really alone unless you had some friends you know the the cafeteria closed down early so it wasn't really a good time for you while while your colleagues were away at home enjoying their families you were really just stuck on campus really trying to find food to eat but what is great about what you just mentioned is we invited our last meeting last week we invited one of um one of the uh uh, uh health professionals from uh, our Aggie Health Center uh, to talk to our males about mental health, uh, because I wanted to, as we, as we're going into finals, I wanted them to understand that as males, we don't really pay attention to our mental health as, you know, as, as much as we should. And over the last couple of years, it has really become very important that we tap into that point of, of, of our, um, of, of our identities, because even during our group discussion, some of our males admitted that they have uh, co contemplated suicide, that they've been stressed throughout their lives, they had family problems and other issues. You know, so I thought that it should be it. It was required as an institution to bring in and have this type of conversation, and that is the main reason, one of the reasons that I started that group uh, about two years ago to really start looking at the data. First of all, I'm always data driven. And in and, and, and the data, it showed that our males just don't do as well uh, with their matriculation. The first year, their first year experience, they may, may retain them about 70%, but then we start drilling the data down by race and ethnicity. And then the second year and the third year, you, you lose about 50% the second year, and then 25% thereafter. You know, so that is a serious issue where you have all of these male, brilliant male students uh, leaving the institution and, uh, and the institution not knowing why that they're leaving, that this brilliant intellect is leaving and we're not exploring why they're leaving. And, and oftentimes it was because either of financial reasons or mental health reasons that they were just under so much stress and 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 unfortunately, with a lot of males, our our masculinity or our um, idea of masculinity kick in where we don't want to reach out for help. We don't want to reach out for assistance because we see that as a sign of weakness. So we 
oftentimes suffer in silence. And so we're constantly through our meetings, having conversations, building these relationships, not only having fun activities, which really build that relationship piece, that relational piece, but like today, we're having study sessions. We, we have study sessions on a weekly basis to, to, to kind of build that support system. And I think institutions have a responsibility to start looking at all those student subpopulations that are not doing well and finding out. I think we are often misled by the broader number, our retention numbers, the broader persistence number, the broader uh, graduation number. But when you start drilling those numbers down, definitely for communities of color, that our efforts need to be a little bit more tailored. We need to have more conversations definitely about mental health because oftentimes in the uh, in communities of color, we don't discuss those types of topics. You kind of just suffer in silence or you push through it because historically that's what we've had to do. Uh, but it doesn't do us any good when you start pushing those down because you're not hiding them. They're gonna surface in some kind of way. You know, so having these conversations, having open conversations, in a safe environment has been important in general, but also with my males of color. And I think every institution should start having a closer look because we're at a point where students are really open to have these, this, these type of conversations. Now we need to start putting those services and support systems in place. So what other community organizations um, do you collaborate with as it relates to mental health for your students um, or any other needs or initiatives that New Mexico State University has that maybe some of um, the institutions in our audience might benefit from learning about? Oh, great, great. We actually collaborate with, we are part of APLU, the Association of Public uh, and, uh, Universities, Land-Grant Universities, that we are a land-grant institution. And we are in the kind of Western cluster where you have about 16 institutions but we're in a cohort of 11 institutions where we meet on a monthly basis that we talk about best practice or best practices for your institution. We talk about the struggles and opportunities that are happening at uh, each institution, which was very, very important over the last two years because there wasn't a blueprint on how to navigate COVID. There wasn't a blueprint on how to have discussions about social justice and free speech or there wasn't a platform or a blueprint on how do you address this conversation about the toxic political environment that we've had uh, over the last couple of years. So having these groups that are in the APLU was, was essential. And I think every institution should be a part of a cohort like that so you can have these conversations about curricular analytics, which now we are pushing that idea of curricular analytics, which is similar to data analytics, but you're looking at the curricula at a deeper, uh, 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 deeper dive on how you can better update and, and create pathways and your curricula. So working with this cohort of, of, of Western uh, uh, groups have been essential because again, I don't think we could have navigated this on our own this last two years. So having board, getting feedback from these various uh, uh, provosts and associate provosts and presidents who sit on this uh, on these committees has been has been essential for us. And then also. Um, We've, I've, we've mentioned before EAB, I think a lot of institutions are using EAB, which has been great EAB Navigate, and we use that, the student success component, uh, which is essential. We've used that in the past when I was at Georgia State University, and it has been essential here because I think one of the key pieces is that early alert, that oftentimes all of our students will run into some challenges, but partnering with your instructor, partnering with academic affairs and student affairs, 
really helps us uh, address those, those, those needs of our students sooner rather than learning later. Early intervention is key. So when you have this idea of what we call wraparound service or, or, or educating the whole student, what does that, that mean? One department cannot educate a student. One department cannot create a wraparound service, but building these partnerships and collaborations where you can create this early intervention for our students have, 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 have been great. And then also, uh, I think a lot of institutions now, which we are part of is the PDP, the post-secondary uh, data partnership, which again is another opportunity for you to really access uh, data to really start looking at other institutions and looking at the national data, looking at your data to see how you can better serve your students, or also to see those population of students that are not making it to, to the finish line. So we have, we are at this time, we're using several different platforms and collaborating with several different institutions to really get an idea on how we can kind of tailor our services, take some of these practices and tailor it to our student population. You've touched on this a little bit, but I'd love uh, some additional thoughts here. Uh, about how you're really tracking the effectiveness um, in that post-graduation window. You know, you talked about uh, those those curricular analytics. I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, <laughs> that work and um, how you're ensuring that students are moving their careers in the right direction. And I think with the curricular analytics, which is fairly uh, fairly new, uh, with Neil uh, Neil Heisman, that over the last two years, uh, uh, Arkansas State University, as well as Georgia State, not Georgia State, but Georgia Tech University, have really built this platform, which is curricular analytics, which really looks at the instructional complexity and the structure complexity of your curricular. You know, because again, on the student affairs side, we, you know, they they create all these support services. But if barriers are baked into your curricular, then it makes it difficult to really create and keep your support services in place. So right now, institutions really need to start drilling down and looking at the pathways. And what curriculum analytics, it starts taking all this data of your curricular, it generates this complexity score to let you know how complex. So it runs this algorithm and it tells you how complex your curricular is. And it also starts running numbers as far as where are potential barriers in that curricular, what courses are hanging up your students, why there's a high DWF rate in these particular uh, areas. And so you can have a better conversation with the deans and the chairs and the faculty to say, hey, this, this particular pathway has a high curriculum, high complexity score. Uh, can we simplify this? Or in some cases, complexity is good, but how is there a better way to do this? Or it allows you to compare the complexity of your curricula with other institutions, especially if we're looking at engineering majors or biology majors, you may wanna look at other institutions to see what the curricular complexity is of their particular um, uh, 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 degree at that school. So what it does, it really starts drilling down, giving you data, on what your curriculum look like. And what we found out so far in this cohort of institutions who are actually kind of playing around with it is that oftentimes we have pathways that have just kind of been built along the way, but no one really looked at the sequential seamlessness of the curriculum or that some courses are on the books that students are taking that no longer are relevant 
uh, for that particular major. So what you start finding is that we have barriers baked into these curricula because we just kind of do that add-on method throughout the years and never re really look at the entire curricula holistically. So that's kind of the intent of the curricular complexity. And as you mentioned, with looking at our students and, and them being placed, I think that's an area that we are really trying to rev up our efforts. Of course, you have our alumni association who track students, you have our career services and experiential uh, departments that's tracking the data on their population of students. And then you also have various departments that track, track their graduates and where they're placed and their starting salary and how long it, it took for their students to be placed. But I think, as an institution, we're moving to doing a better job at how can we bring all of this information together to really look at our student, all of our students, where they are being placed, are they being successful, are they being placed in jobs, are they getting jobs in the, in the degree field that they were looking at, because oftentimes you find out that students have a degree in one area, but they end up getting a job in a different area, or are your students staying within New Mexico or are they finding jobs somewhere else? This, all of this is important information. And, and, and again, in different departments and units, we're tracking this, but I think as an institution, we're really pushing the dial to see how can we bring all of this, this knowledge and information together as an institution. I am very encouraged about um, moving from 21 to 2022, because I think over the last two years, the pandemic has really uh, pushed the envelope of what institutions are required to do and what we need to do, because the landscape of higher education has been changing for many years, at least over the last 10, 15 years, the, the ground has been shifting under higher education, but we hadn't really paid much attention to it. But over the last two years with the pandemic, with the uh, toxic political environment, with the social unrest, it has really pushed the institutions to say, hey, we can do these things. We can put uh, classes online that we we had to pivot when we, we when we had to. So how can we create a more robust environment for our students? How can we be more inclusive in our classroom and include our voices? How can we provide more training for our instructors on how to uh, update their teaching methods? And how can we build a collaborative environment for uh, for our students to partner with their instructors? and other community members on creating student success. Because again, over the last two years, we have really had to pivot. We've really had to do some things that institutions said we could never do. So it's really taking those, those items and those innovative ideas that we built on and not just put them on the shelf, but really build on those things that we've done. So I'm very encouraged. I think we have a bright future if we keep moving in the direction that we're going in, because again, we are our student population of change and their needs are changing. We talked about mental health. Uh, we have an increase of diversity, especially our Hispanic student population is really increasing. And we really need to understand again, that higher education is that place where all of our students feel that that is their access to social mobility. You know, and as you started off beginning that, now that they are wondering, should I be here or should I not be here because I'm not being included in conversation, that the institution doesn't recognize me for who I am or recognize my background, my experiences. So we have a great opportunity here to really reimagine ourselves by really tailoring our services 
to our student population and who we serve and really collaborate with our community, our community partners, the different business organizations. So I'm very encouraged and excited about the future and this momentum that we generated over the last two years is just that we have to really keep it going and really just understand where we are in this point of time, but we have a great opportunity in front of us.